All right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Serious Angler podcast powered by our friends over at X2 Power Batteries. As always, I'm your host, Bailey Eichbert, and joined with me is the captain, Mr. Andy Full. What's up, buddy? Oh, just waiting for the wind to die so I can get out on Erie a couple more times before I put the boat away. Yeah. So. Yeah, that kind of ruined <laughs> our plans this week, eh? Yeah, it's... um. Lake Erie has been blowing so hard out of the southwest that Ohio from like, was it Vermilion Point, I think, to basically Pennsylvania has had a low water warning because all the water is in Buffalo at the moment with 8 to 13 foot waves for the last like five days. But we have... A reprieve coming like Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I believe. Sunday, I'm expecting it to be mud. Monday, I might try to sneak out or Tuesday. For folks that uh, yeah. watch, that is what we're dealing with. Those stars are where Andy and I are. <laughs> yes. it. Um, <laughs> it's blowing. <laughs> it's, it's been blowing every day for what I feel like since the Canadian Tire Open like two weeks ago. But the, the good news is usually when it blows for two weeks in the fall, we get like a week and a half to two and a half weeks of reprieve before gale season starts. The only thing that stinks is I have a lot of steelhead trips coming up in the next two weeks, so my time might be limited to get out so and catch So you're saying I should steal your boat because your boat needs some use. Yeah, I got to drain the ethanol gas out of my boat and get some non-ethanol and some fuel treatment in there, so I got to burn some gas. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I so. know a boat driver that doesn't have time on his hands but would like to go for a <laughs> I got to teach you how to drive this boat, first of all. I, dude, I haven't even been in it yet. We haven't been able to I find know. time. Dude, Our schedules only, have been so insane. I think we've only fished together like, what, two, maybe three times this year? Maybe. Twice. I think it's twice. Yeah, it's we went to that. <laughs> That little lake, and then we won a derby, and we haven't been on the boat since. That's like, hey, we're keeping it going. (laughs) Yeah, we're doing good. (laughs) We're one for one. We might as well call it quits. (laughs) Right. Yeah. At that rate, just just kill it. Good grief. Yeah. Well, it is a Friday. Uh, I am. I'm happy it's Friday. I mean, you know, obviously recording on Thursday. We have a really cool guest for today's show. Obviously, the folks are either watching or listening on a Friday, or potentially listening at a later date. But, um. Where when this is being posted, it is a Friday. So glad it's Friday. Glad the weekend's here. Sucks that the wind kind of tam- uh, dampened our plans for uh, our buddy Sean from X2, who was going to come fish with us. That was a bummer. Uh, but a fun show today. But one thing I want to talk about is actually tomorrow's show. And I know that you're like, wait, you know, so you're saying there's no show on Saturday. Uh, our lab. new show, yep, the Lure Lab. Uh, we're going to have a show on finesse football jigs. That is the next one. That's going to be pretty cool. We'll drop a link down to Lure Lab if you guys haven't checked that out. Highly encourage you to, especially uh, if you're a gear junkie, you're a tackle nerd like Andy. Uh, Lure Lab is right up your alley. Um, so highly encourage you guys to do so, uh, especially if you know if you're driving to the ramp. It's a quick 15, 20-minute episode. It'll be fun for you guys to uh, kind of dive in. We just go in straight finesse football jigs. Like not even talking straight football jigs yet, but like just the intricacies of finesse football jigs because there is a difference, and it yeah. definitely – can help and our guest today i'm actually intrigued because i know this is a a bite out on the west coast i'm kind of curious how he dives 
into uh, some football jigging. But uh, the one guy I, I know that does a lot of finesse football jigging out there is my buddy, Mr. Greg Blanchard, who I just posted a video with on my personal channel. Encourage people to go check that out. But uh, Andy, I'm just excited to talk some finesse fishing because we've been talking a lot of power fall power, fishing yeah. lately. And I haven't been able to do any of it. So I'm kind of mad at that because I've been having to finesse fish. So I'm, I'm excited to talk some finesse fishing today because I'm mad at the power techniques. And uh, we, have a, we have a great guest on for that, Mr. Matt Luna from the West Coast. And Andy, I said we just get him in here. Yeah, go ahead. Fire away. All right. Mr. Matt Luna, what is going on, sir? How's it going, guys? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah, yeah. thanks yeah. for joining. You are in a much warmer climate right now than we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would probably if normally do this in the garage with my like background and everything like that, but it was literally like in the mid nineties today and we still have mosquitoes out there biting us. So that's why I'm in, in the house and uh with the air conditioner on still. You know, yeah. I was gonna say that I was jealous, but when you say nineties, I'll take thirties over nineties any day of the week. The thirties scare me, I'm not gonna lie. Like that's like really? as cold as it gets where I live. My house like, right literally. Now. So I, I went on a trip with the dual molds guys in Iowa and they were talking about how it gets like ice over out there where we were fishing and, and stuff like that. And I think like they're still like fishing and it's colder than like it gets ever here. Like the coldest I've probably ever been in at home is, I don't know, 28, 29, something like that. Like that's ever? it. Like. Like, you know, it was cold last night if you go outside and if there's frost on your car, not snow on the ground, no like icicles dropping from anywhere, like just frost on your windshield that you got to like scrape off in the morning. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's about as cold as it gets out here. Dang. It isn't, I've just heard like the climate out there is actually relatively, I mean, obviously summers get super hot, but like for the most part, like you don't have like crazy weather. No, not really. I mean, like the craziest things that we get are earthquakes and like that. Okay, that's, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> pretty rare. I mean, there's only certain areas that get earthquakes like that, but like those are rare. Like we might get a small one here and there and you might feel it. You might not feel it. But like in terms of like big ones that like people are afraid of, like, I mean, I, I'm saying this and it could happen tomorrow, but like overall, like I think the biggest one ever happened since I was alive was like, when I was a baby and ever since then it's been pretty mellow and uh weather wise it gets hot out here but we don't have tornadoes like we our thunderstorms and lightning shows are like nothing compared to like the rest of the country um we're begging for rain most of the time out here mm-hmm. um and like I said it, we there's no snow like snow is not happening where I live if it happens it's like a miracle. I think the last time it snowed where I lived was probably like before I was born. Jeez. I think people have forgotten that earthquakes exist. With all the madness that we've gone through the past three years, I think people are like, ah, earthquakes, we can handle that. <laughs> well, that's the weird thing. Like, I was having a conversation with somebody about this the other day, and it was like, if you live in Florida, like, you know you're going to get a hurricane. Like, if you live in Oklahoma, like, you know at some point you're getting a tornado. In California, like, there's a chance of an earthquake and like there's no warning like there's no there's no like weather channel that's like hey in four days this is going to hit land (laughs) kind of like a tornado like it just happens you know what i mean like even with the tornado like they know that like hey we're have weather that could possibly create a tornado but like 
or an earthquake, you're just walking down the sidewalk and all of a sudden it starts shaking and you're like, oh, I guess we had an earthquake. Yeah. <laughs> Am I drunk or is the ground moving? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> or you're like in your house and you see something shaking on the wall and you didn't quite feel it. And then like everyone's like, oh my gosh, there was an earthquake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's something that's completely different. Well, you know, so we talked to you about, uh, about offline, like, a tangents exhibit a there's number one for the night. yeah earthquakes um, yeah earthquakes. <laughs> i wonder uh, what would happen if you're like on a lake and a good earthquake happened like does the water like start to siege and stuff and do all kinds of weird ripply stuff or is it just like normal i bet you wouldn't know that it happened unless it was like a gigantic earthquake but if it was like your average one like i bet you wouldn't even know that it happened fair enough Hey, you're just getting calls. Did you feel it? Feel what? I'm fishing. Like, I'm on a boat. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it would be like. Yeah. I felt the boat drive by me that was a little too close, but that's about it. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, dude, so obviously you're, you're new to the show. It's the first time we're having you on. Uh, it's really good to get you on here. Uh, but for everyone that's new to the show, what we like to do is throw it back to where it all started for you from a mm-hmm. fishing standpoint. Who got you into fishing? You know, did you did you grow up on the West Coast? Did you come from somewhere else? Like, give us the, the whole story on how everything began for you. Yeah, so I, I grew up in San Diego County my whole life. I don't live in the city of San Diego. I live in the county. and uh, But I live, like, literally, like, minutes from the city of San Diego. That's where I've grown up my whole life. Um, my first love in life was actually baseball. And I played baseball all the way through college and everything like that. I did fish with my dad as a kid and stuff like that. We'd do some bass fishing. We'd do some trout fishing, stuff like that. Um, for the most part, we didn't really know what we were doing. My dad did have a buddy that um, fished competitively for bass before he switched over to the saltwater. So he was kind of like a, a guide for us to like, hey, this is a Texas rig. Like, here's what kind of works out here in San Diego, stuff like that. And then once I started getting towards the tail end of high school or college, I mean, is when I started taking fishing a little bit more seriously. I started to get back into it. And that's when I started kind of learning how to do it. I remember going to one of the tackle shops. Um, It was the same one that Andrew was mentioning offline. He's County Bait and Tackle, but it was named something different at the time. And I literally walked in there and I said, you know, I want to go fish. I have, I I know how to fish for the most part, but like, I just want to catch fish. And they introduced me to the drop shot and I was still in college at the time. And went to one of the local lakes that has good bank access and started catching some drop shot fish and, um, you know, did that for a while. And then once I was done with college is when I started really getting into bass fishing more and more. Um, there's a, a website, a forum that a lot of the San Diego fishermen are a part of, and it was really, really popular at the time. Um, I've kind of fallen away from following along on that, that website now, that forum, but back then it was really popular. And, um, I ended up selling a fishing rod on there in their classified sections and met um, a good buddy of mine that I'm still friends with to this day. And um, he was a local guide out here. So he and I started fishing together. And that's when I started to really kind of learn how to fish, learn how to fish these lakes out here and got introduced to the tournament scene a little bit. Now, when I first met him, I didn't fish tournaments competitively with him right out of the gate, but we'd go fun fishing. I'd go with him while he was practicing for a team tournament, something like that. And then eventually we did fish a series together. And then I fished with a couple different people and my dad included. And then um, eventually I decided that I wanted to do this Matt Luna fishing thing. And that's when I started really going hard on the social media side of things, posting content and trying to, 
you know, develop a brand in order to fish these out of town events and, and, and try to make some money fishing and stuff like that. That's, that's kind of the, the progression of everything. Like before, before I decided to, to do Matt Luna fishing, like I didn't post anything on social media. I didn't post, I might've posted fish catch here and there, like on my regular Facebook page or something like that, but like nothing that, you know, was continual content or YouTube or anything like that. But unfortunately I had the YouTube idea back in 2013, like literally, like I bought a GoPro, I bought a Mac in order to edit the videos and I made one video and I think I posted it privately on YouTube at some point on some random, you know, channel I probably created back then. And, you know, it could have been life changing if I would have actually started doing it back in 2013. I feel like there's a handful of people that I've ran into that either started it and like just like went away from it or like had the idea and like have like a crap ton of videos from back in the day and just never posted them. That could be just like who knows what the dynamics of the YouTube fishing space would look like right now if they if they did that. Like, yeah, I mean, like, that yeah. I feel like fall into that bucket. Yeah, I mean, there's the guys like Millican and all the Guggen guys and stuff like that. Like, they're good YouTubers, don't get me wrong, but part of their success was being first. Like, anytime you're first, you're going to have, you know, a major impact on the market. Now, right. eventually it comes down to who's best because people have more to choose from. But with the algorithms and everything the way they are, like those guys are going to get put in front of other people because more people watch them. They have a relationship with them through the social media, stuff like that. So don't get me wrong. They all have, you know, good content and stuff like that, or else they wouldn't still be relevant and popular. But a lot of it is being first. Like if you can be first, like that's going to be game changing for everything. Like when you were first on TikTok for some of this stuff, you blew up, you know, like part of my numbers from TikTok were just posting tackle making videos and, people kept watching it. It was no different than the guy that was like, you know, edging his lawn and like millions of people watched it for whatever reason, because there was nothing else <laughs> the to watch. Dumbest TikTok, stuff. You know? <laughs> Those uh, for some reason, and I'm, I'm totally guilty of this is like, there's like the pages where it's just like, of just satisfying videos, like of the perfect yeah, line yeah. in the grass. And people are like, yes, this is the content I want. And it makes no sense. Like when you look at the grand scheme, you're like, this is pretty stupid. But like people <laughs> yeah. consume the crap out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That was taken. Yeah, sorry. Know how they do it themselves. Like, it's just yeah. lack of content on there. And people yeah. are like, what is that? What's that shiny metal stuff? And then they go, oh, that's yeah. somebody's making a fishing lure. Like, you know, so. Yeah. Heck yeah. It, it's kind of interesting to see the evolution of that. I mean, talking from social media, like everybody is now trying to basically do every platform into one at the same time i feel like that's what everyone's trying to do now it's making it really difficult well i mean with with facebook doing the reels and instagram doing the reels it's really basically them trying to be tiktok and then youtube shorts is the same thing and at this point you can go on instagram facebook or tiktok or youtube shorts and see the same videos yeah, I mean, well, and there's like a, a growing, uh, like almost, I shouldn't say movement, but there's been a, a few people I've noticed big time, like Milliken does this, where he posts his full videos to Facebook, and they're mm-hmm. like, people are blowing up on Facebook now from like that long form content, which is like, it's it's interesting to see this shift. Um, Facebook, if, if, if you have a platform on Facebook right now already, 
and you have like a halfway decent following, I would say now is the time to go hard on Facebook for sure. Because one, if you're good at posting photos, photos still do really well on Facebook. But if you post them anywhere else, they don't do well at all. Um, but Facebook, they still do well. Um, yep. And then the video content still does really well. But there's been guys talking about putting the long form content on Facebook for a long time. Um, I, I have wanted to do more of that. I have done some of that, but it just, I haven't been diligent about continually posting that stuff to Facebook as well. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting shift. And here we go. Tangent number three, three of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's yeah. quakes in social media tangents. I love it. <laughs> go hand I in hand. I can go any direction you want to go. Uh, I'm, I'm good, but I'm sure the other, I'm sure the, I'm sure the listeners and watchers would much rather listen to fishing talk than social media talk. Yeah, probably. We should probably get back. <laughs> yeah. That'll, that'll be the title. Earthquakes and finesse fishing with Matt Luna. <laughs> right. Yes. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so one thing, so talking about finesse fishing, because um, we've been following you for a while, and I think that's one thing, uh, you seem very confident. It seems to be kind of your forte is, is a finesse deal. And I think that definitely shines, because the one thing I caught out of you saying, like kind of your your upbringing, your path to where you're at now, is like before you even got really heavy into bass fishing was your drop shotting in college which I think a drop shot for many, like for us now, it's like, yeah, I always got one rigged up. Seems pretty straightforward. But like for a beginner, I feel like a drop shot is kind of like, how the cool. hell do I tie this thing? Like yeah. they can't, at least for us Northeasterners, like we start out with a top water and a jig, maybe, or maybe a like mostly a Senko. But I feel like that's kind of like a different culture out West where it's like, it's like the the state of the drop shot. Yeah, for me, like if I was going to take a beginner fishing, they're either going to have a Texas rig or a drop shot on. Like those would be the two. The last thing I would put in their hand out here is a jig. Like the jig bite here can be very good and you can catch big fish on it, but it is not a numbers deal for the most part out here. Now, if you go to like Lake Havasu, like Mead, some of the desert lakes and, and stuff like that, like, yeah, you can get a lot of bites on a jig sometimes, but like here locally... It, it's not the easiest thing to learn. Like I've learned most about fishing a jig from traveling away from San Diego. Like I've caught big fish here on a jig. Don't get me wrong. Like it, it helped me win a tournament big time. I had a, you know, big fish of the tournament because of throwing that jig, but, um, but you might get one bite on it and it'd be the big one that, you know, carries your bag. But, you know, for the most part, like out here, like if you want to get bites, like the drop shots where it's at overall, which is kind of crazy to think about, too, because everyone out there is probably drop shotting at this point. And they've seen every single color of robo worm that could be thrown at their face or glitch by six cents or any style like straight worm six. Was it five, six and like seven inches are like the big ones, four and a half, six and seven. I would say six inches, the most common um, out here for sure. Um, guys do throw the four inch ones out here. I think the bait, like the six cents glitch is going to get you a ton of bites out here because it's smaller profile. Um, it may, it'll catch you big ones out here, but you, it, it's going to get you a lot of other bites as well. I think like I've caught one of the better fish I caught this summer was on the glitch on a drop shot. And, and it was, I don't, I don't remember. It was probably, you know, it was one of those summertime fish with the big heads and skinny bodies and stuff like that. So I don't know exactly what it weighed, but it was one of the better fish that I caught this year on um, in the summertime. And 
it's a, you know, little tiny four inch bait and with basically no action. And, you know, that fish could have eaten a six inch worm or something like that. But I say that because a lot of guys out here do throw the six inch worms specifically like 99% of the time. And, you know, sometimes downsizing to something like that can make a big difference. So is it literally just, is it just because of where you're at regionally that you got such an earlier start into the drop shot or is it like, how did you kind of get an early introduction to that? Because I feel like, I mean, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, at least for me, I didn't get started in a drop shot for a while just because I was like, kind of like, I don't know how the hell to rig this thing up. That not always phase me. Like I would just do a stupid three knots and I break off all the time. And I said, screw this like way back. But like, I feel like not many folks know how to tie it. So I'm curious. So when, when I first started fishing that drop shot, like I literally just started getting back into fishing. I had, I knew how to fish, a, you know, a plastic worm. Like I knew how to fish a Texas rig. I knew how to fish, you know, a bait like that. So for me, I literally just went into the tackle shop saying, Hey, like, I'm sure a lot of stuff's changed since I, you know, I got serious about fishing, you know, what bait should I throw in order to go just get some bites? Like I'm going to walk the bank, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the guy at the tackle shop said a drop shot. So I wouldn't have known about the drop shot if it wasn't from going into that tackle shop. And the guy sold me the worms and sold me the hooks and sold me the sinkers and, you know, showed me how to tie a Palomar knot. And, you know, I probably forgot and, you know, just tied something and, you know, it worked eventually. <laughs> and then, event, you know, as you, you know, progress and get more into it, then you start searching like how to do stuff or you talk to a buddy and, you know, eventually like the Palomar knot became, you know, second nature. So I think it was just for, for me, just a lack of probably not doing it on my own because I went to the tackle shop and they told me what to do and gave me the, the pack of worms and gave me the weights and said, Hey, go to this lake and throw this worm and you could probably, you know, get some bites. And I did. And, you know, if I were to do this all over again, I probably would have went to a different lake because that lake isn't the best one to, to go out there and get a bunch of bites on, but it worked out for me. I ended up catching a couple of fish that day and it really kind of got me back into really wanting to fish. And if you know how to fish a plastic worm, fishing a drop shot is pretty much the same. It's just knowing what equipment you need in order to do it right. Yeah. Right. I say it's good to have a good tackle shop nearby that can help you with that as well. So, and I mean, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, YouTube can do a lot of that. I was going to say, now the kids got YouTube. They don't have the tackle shop. That's fair. Yeah, what I is mean, a tackle shop? <laughs> you know, and like I, I, I've talked to a lot of people that are like, hey, I don't have a tackle shop like that close by. The closest I have is, you know, Bass Pro Shops and nothing against Bass Pro Shops. But like sometimes you'll go in there and the guy will know what he's talking about. Or you go to a Dick's Sporting Goods or something like that. And they have a decent fishing section. But like you don't know how much that person actually fishes, you know what I mean? Like they're staffing that area and they might be a great fisherman and can dial you in. But, you know, you can also go onto YouTube and type in San Diego bass fishing and probably find you'll find some of my videos for sure. But then, you know, find other stuff. And one of the problems with YouTube is you might click on a video and it's just some guy fishing and they're not really talking about specifically what they're doing how to rig it so you might you know hopefully pick up a little nugget from that video and go oh he said he was fishing a drop shot well what is a drop shot how do i fish it now you're you're going down that youtube rabbit hole and you can definitely 
get a lot of great information. Um, but sometimes just having that face-to-face -face communication with somebody at like a tackle shop or something like that can be helpful, but don't get me wrong. You can find the information elsewhere for sure, especially nowadays. Yeah. I, it's interesting. I feel like when I, when I think about the grand scheme of things, I feel like California is probably the most California, maybe like a Arizona. You have to correct me here, Matt, but I feel like the West coast is the most finesse out of like region out of the entire country. I, I would say that a lot of the smallmouth guys like up in Erie and, and something like that, I think they give us a run for their money when it gets to the hair jig and the net rig and the drop shot mm -hmm. and, and, and some of that stuff. But from what I gather is we do it differently. Like you're, I know that like for the, like the St. Lawrence river stuff, for example, like you're, you might be fishing 30 feet, but you're kind of like doing it in that current and stuff like that, where yeah. we're doing it mostly in lakes out here. Like we do have some river fishing and stuff like that, but that's typically not where you're seeing guys throw a drop shot. They're not fishing a half ounce, three eighth ounce drop shot and kind of just dragging it over the uh, boulders that, you know, in the current like that. So we do it differently. But like when I talk to guys about, you know, fishing the Great Lakes or, you know, something like that, where they're fishing those hair jigs and how to dial that hair jig in in order to get the, the, the hair to be right and the right type of head and, you know, what kind of braid they're using on their spinning reels and the actions of the rods. Like some of those guys get really, really dialed into that finesse stuff. And to a point we do too, because we do the hair jig stuff out here. We do, you know, four or five pound tests like those guys do. So I, I would say that those guys give us a run for their, for, for our money on that. But the difference is, is that we're doing it, you know, 12 months a year, 365, where, right. you know, some of those guys just can't because the, the lakes are frozen. Right. Yeah. I think as a whole, it's just like from a, from that West coast perception for me, it's just like always finesse, but I'm kind of curious. So like you definitely seem very confident from a finesse standpoint, but like when you're going to the lake, do you start out with any power techniques? Or are you just straight up picking up spinning rod or a finesse? Oh, technique? for sure. It, it kind of depends on where I'm at. Like if, if I'm fishing locally, I'll probably have a crankbait, like a deep diving crankbait, like a, like a C25 from six cents or a C20, something that's going to go 20, 25 foot, because for the most part, that's where our fish live 75% of the time is is deep like that we have times where they come up shallow and there's times where you can catch some fish shallow but a lot of times i'm fishing in that 25 to 35 foot of water is that because and the water is so clear too or I do you have like a mix of water clarity around you um i mean home, at home and most of the tournament lakes that we fish the water's pretty clear um havasu is really clear the lake mojave where where we were just at is even more clear lake mead's very clear uh one of our local lakes San Vicente, is really clear but we have deep lakes where i'm from um you know the water is super low at one of our my home lakes and yet it still can be 150 to 200 feet deep in that lake in certain parts of it and the water level is probably 100 foot down um so it, 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 it's just because they're they're small too so i think that those fish just i don't know what it is exactly i think it's because they're deep so the lakes are deep. So them being in 25 foot isn't deep where 
you know, if you're fishing a river system, like some of the rivers don't even have 25 foot in them. You know what I mean? So like mm -hmm. deep there is relative to, you know, 10, 15, something like that. Um, but like you go to a lake like Rayburn, which I've been to, like I caught a six pounder out of 40 foot of water and 90% of fishermen don't even fish 40 foot of water on Rayburn. You know, they're fishing deep offshore stuff, but they're fishing 20, 30, stuff like that. But I found this area that looked like home and it was 40 foot deep and I was, I caught a six pounder out there. So those fish, they'll live there even though, but you can go and catch a six pounder the same day in the grass and the hydrilla at Rayburn too. So it kind of just depends on what you want to do what you need to do yeah well, here I, I don't know exactly why they're deep but I, I have a feeling it's just because the lakes in general are deep and i think the the water clarity can play a factor on that but i think overall it's more that just the fish are just used to that deep water andy you were gonna you were gonna say something well i was gonna say i mean it, it goes back to like how you're talking about rayburn right and catching a fish in 40 foot and all fishing comes down to what your confidence is and being able to find fish and catch them within your confidence zone. And I think that's why Western anglers translate so well to fishing in like the Northeast because you have that finesse drop shot background. And when you f start finding fish, like let's call them main lake points and reservoirs out West because they're all pretty much reservoirs at this point, right? It, it kind of translates well to the Great Lakes because a lot of the stuff is underwater points. It's just topographic contour line points, not actual landmass points that form. And you're virtually fishing the same thing. It's just some bodies of water like the St. Lawrence have current as opposed to standstill water. And it, it's kind of cool how it translated into Rayburn that way for you as well. Yeah, I think that like, like Rayburn's a beast. And when you go out there and you want to fish offshore, like if you're a new person to Rayburn, fishing offshore is going to be really hard. One, because the lake's so gigantic. And two, because it, it's not like you're necessarily like idling to find like a, a rock pile. Like you could idle and find a rock pile or a brush pile with fish on it and stuff like that. But you're you're more looking for clay and, and some of that harder stuff that's a little bit harder to identify. Cause if you have side scan on and stuff like that, and you're idling around finding a rock pile is not that hard. Like it looks like a rock pile when you find it. So what I ended up getting lucky on is I found this big Island and it had these giant rocks. And I was like, well, that looks like stuff that I fish at home. So I ended up idling it. Those rocks went out into deep water. I picked up a Carolina rig, started throwing it around like I would at home and boom, I got, I get one. You know, so that was, you know, a spot that I was hoping that would have, you know, done better for me come tournament time. And I did get some bites there during the tournament, but I didn't get them in the boat. They came off and stuff like that. But, you know, that's fishing. But that's just kind of like what I looked at and said, this makes sense. So I fished it. And, you know, if I look at what we were doing at Lake Mojave or what the winners were doing at Lake Mojave is kind of like that structural element more so than the cover element like if you're fishing a rock pile you're fishing that rock cover if you're fishing a, a an underwater high spot or an underwater a hump or and a point that goes way out like you're fishing the structure of the lake at that point and i think that translates into exactly what you were saying which is what a lot of those guys do because you could idle for days on some of our desert lakes and not get a good rock pile like you might see some 
some like uh, boulder, like uh, baseball, softball size rock and stuff like that. But you're not seeing that big boulder. So you're really fishing some of those structural elements that those fish are kind of sitting on out there. And that's where some of that forward facing sonar and the pressure of, of a big tournament like that um, is where, you know, that finesse fishing really comes into play. And I think that's a lot of why finesse fishing becomes so big out here is just because of the sheer pressure, because mm -hmm. like, especially at my home lakes, our lakes are small and, you know, there's a fair amount of people that go out there and fish every weekend. And, you know, those fish just see bait after bait after bait. And I think it just, you're, and you end up having to fish a drop shot or something like that in order to get those bites or to fill out your limit. You may, maybe you catch a big one on a crankbait or a swimbait or something like that, but to fill out your limit, then you, you got to do some of that finesse stuff. Makes sense. When, what are like the first telltale signs for you to put the, you know, that the fast moving, like what, what's the first telltale signs to bring out your finesse baits or finesse application? Like what are the first things you're looking for? So for me, if I'm practicing for an event, like it's going to take me a lot longer to do that because I don't know necessarily where those active fish are on the lake. And when I'm going to a tournament, I'm fishing a much bigger body of water generally. So I'm going to give that stuff a really good go to try to see if I can find a reaction bait bite or a crankbait bite or something like that. But if I'm at home, I'll probably pull up on a couple rock piles that are deep where I think the fish should be. And I'll fish that thing on a couple different rock piles, throw a crankbait down there, throw a Carolina rig out there, work it kind of fast, maybe work a jig down there real fast. And if I don't get bit pretty quick, I'm going to start bringing that spinning rod out and kind of alternate until I kind of dial in, okay, they, they want the drop shot today. They want that finesse today. Um, sometimes a shaky head can be a good player, especially in the summertime out here. Hmm. Um, I'm sure you can catch them all year long on it, but I've had the most success out here with the shaky head in the summertime more so than any other time. So now there, there's a bait that doesn't really translate that well to the Northeast. I feel is a shaky head. I think it I does. Think, I think just no one throws it. Fair. That's a fair point. I, it's really I don't fish much a shaky head. I, I don't fish a shaky head that much. Like most of the time I won't have a shaky head tied up unless it's summertime for me out here. That's probably, a, on a downside for me like i probably should tie it up more um but i think that i think you put a crawbait on that shaky head you probably get bit out there like if they're gonna eat you know a carolina rig on st lawrence like they'd probably eat a shaky head down there it's just not as efficient to fish it because mm -hmm. unless you use a really heavy one and then now you're in that dilemma going you know should i use a casting rod is the weight lighting up like spinning rod casting rod dilemma stuff like that so i think that you know a shaky head has its place for sure but i think the shaky head thing really does damage more so you know in that oklahoma probably some of the texas stuff midwest stuff Ledges. i think that's really where it, it it does its damage and gets a lot of its popularity but i'm sure I'm sure a fish, if there's large mouth around, they'll eat a shaky head. Like I haven't particularly had the most success around small mouth with it. Um, I don't know that I've ever caught a small mouth on a shaky head personally, but I guarantee you there there's people that have. So, yeah. So one thing I picked up that I think was important out of that was in, in a tournament practice, you're not quick to pick up a spinning rod or pick up a finesse application. I think that's important to talk about 
because I completely agree there where it's like, if it's a brand new body of water to me that I don't have any experience on, I'm typically might, I'm not really going to try to pick up, say I say I have three days of practice, you know, day one, I'm typically not going to even try to pick up a finesse application. I'm going to try to cover as much water as possible where there's, there's some people I feel like get frustrated because they might find active fish, you know, one day and Mm -hmm. they go through the whole circus of baits trying to figure out what they're going to eat. And then they wonder come tournament day, why they're not active anymore. And I think it's because there's people that get bogged down with once they find fish, they think they're good. They just got to cycle through baits and they'll fish those fish. Whereas if you cover water during your practice time versus trying to cycle through a hundred different baits, you just take one to three things and if you cover water, you're going to be able to always pick up a finesse rod, like whether it's a drop shot or a shaky head or a small swim bait, something or the other, and be able to use that in a tournament. I think people need to have the, the finesse applications are there for us to have confidence that they're always going to get bit. So I feel mm-hmm. like tournament practice is a great conversation about like pick up that power stuff. You always know that you're going to be able to get bit on light line finesse applications, and that's the time to go find the active fish, the feeding fish, and those bigger caliber fish that'll potentially win tournaments. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that if I think generally speaking, when guys are winning tournaments, they're not winning the tournament generally on that finesse presentation. They're generally going to win it on some sort of a reaction bait. Um, now, I, I would say that you know, flipping, punching, stuff like that for out here, I wouldn't, that's definitely not a finesse deal, but um, it is slow. I mean, punching and flipping can be a a slower presentation, but I definitely don't consider that to be a finesse tactic at all. But I think that the reason you want to stick with those reaction baits for practice is basically because of what you said about covering water. Now, if you're practicing for a big event and you fish that lake all the time, then yeah, you're going to be quicker to probably pick that stuff up because I know there's fish here. They're not Mm -hmm. eating a chatterbait today. They're not eating a crankbait today. So I need to pick up that finesse bait. But if you don't know that lake and you're just fishing these points with a drop shot slow, like you, like, like you fish a drop shot, you're just not going to cover enough water because you may not find the active area of the lake because some lakes are big enough that if you're on the Southern part, they're not eaten today. You go to the northern mm-hmm. part, it's wide open. Like, it just depends. And if you're not putting that time in trying to cover a lot of water, you're probably going to miss out. And then there's other times where the lake just sucks the time that you're there. And that's when those finesse techniques have to come out. Now, if you have three days of practice, you know, I, I would say that if you're practicing, you should probably have maybe a spinning rod or two on the deck just to kind of test it here and there. Like, hey, I get, I just found this awesome looking spot and i didn't get bit on these baits like let me throw this out there just to see like if i get bit on that okay keep that in the back of your mind waypoint that spot and realize where you got bit and then keep running some of that other stuff and then when you get on to another spot that seems similar man i think i should have got bit there throw that drop shot back out there okay i just got bit again doing that same thing maybe the bite's just tough and i gotta just finesse these fish and and Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong there's always somebody that finds a reaction bite or is able to figure out how to get five swim bait fish to go where you may not have found that. And you have to grind it out with that, you know, Ned rig, that drop shot, whatever, that wacky rig, something like that in order to get those bites. It's just, you have to go with what you find. And when you're fishing the reaction baits and trying to cover a lot of water, you see more of the lake 
that you're not familiar with. And mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's a positive in most situations. Oh yeah. And with the current trend of like forward facing sonar and you see the fish and when you get good enough with it, you can be, you can tell those bass and they're not eating anything else. You're like, I should probably throw this drop shot and see if they're going to eat this thing. Like it's, it's good. Like you mentioned to have one or two rods available throughout those practice days just to see if, Hey, is my fail safe? You know, am I going to be okay to rely on this thing? Whereas you might try to, you know, find that swim bait bite that can get you that one or two giants. Yeah. And I, I learned this in a recent tournament like Havasu. And one of the things that I like to do is fish a ball head swim bait. And, um, oh man. And with this, with, on a spinning rod, like ball head swim bait on a spinning rod, eight pound test, six pound test, something like that. You'll catch large mouth on it. You'll catch small mouth on it. And that's what you catch at Lake Havasu. And that's one of the things that I like to throw there. And I didn't throw it at all in practice. And then come to find out, um, I'm trying to catch some fish come tournament day and none of my stuff's working. And I finally picked that thing up and I'm one, I don't know the retrieve that they want because I didn't throw it at all in practice. Two, I don't necessarily know what color I'd prefer to have. Um, sometimes chartreusing the tails makes a big difference. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes going with the chartreuse color swim bait makes a difference. So like I didn't have any of that information. So now I'm going back to scratch. And I know there was guys that had really good bags on day one of the tournament, probably during some of that low light in the morning, throwing that little swim bait and, and caught fish and doing some things that you know catch fish at that lake, whether it's that little swim bait or a drop shot or a Nedrick or something like that to kind of give you an idea of, of what you need to do to get bites can also be a factor because you can throw those reaction baits and just make cast after cast after cast and not get bit and see the entire lake. And the tournament starts tomorrow and you have nothing to go on and you feel like it's the dead sea out there. But at yeah. least if you keep it honest every once in a while, throwing some of that finesse stuff, it will help you kind of have a backup plan. And unfortunately with this last tournament at Mojave, I tried to incorporate some of that finesse stuff more in my practice than I have in the past, just because I knew, Hey, this is probably going to be a tough bite. There's a lot of pressure on the lake. I'm going to need to know where these fish really are and maybe grind it out in different areas. So I had the, those finesse presentations on the deck more often and sooner into practice. And it kind of get, let me know, Hey, this color is working for, for the glitch. And it was the mystical color glitch from Sixth Sense. That one was working. I was getting bites on that. Okay, you know, green pumpkin crawbait was working on a lighter Carolina rig in the grass. So I, I could fall back on some of that. Unfortunately, I didn't adjust soon enough into my tournament. And, you know, the day one went by and I blanked. I kept trying to, to run a pattern that, you mm -hmm. know, wasn't working for me, even though it was what the guys won on. Um, but you know, I had some, some electronics issues and it just didn't work out for me that day. And I, if I would have just went to plan B and went to the areas where I was getting bit on a drop shot and bit on the Carolina rig and just grinded it out, you know, and did that for three days, I could have probably cashed a check. Like I wasn't going to win the tournament doing that, but you know, cashing a check goes a long way when you fish these events and put the thousands right. of dollars into it, you know, you're probably still going to be losing money in that deal, but at least you're not losing as much. Yeah. So I, I kind of get the vibe that you're you have a wide selection of different colors that you like to throw. Actually, I I I would say I don't. I mean, if you went into my into my my box, like in my tackle box, like when it comes to like six cents prawns, for example, uh beaver style bait, 
I pretty much have green pumpkin in there. If you go into the stroker craw bag that I have, I pretty much have green pumpkin. Now, when it comes to a drop shot or something like that, I might have a handful of different colors, but it's all natural stuff, like a shad pattern, uh, a, a, like a watermelon-y type color where like that mystical color, it's like a watermelon top with like a clear blue bottom. So it just looks like a bait fish basically. And it could pretend to be a bluegill. It could pretend to be a shad, depending on what you're going for. It's just a natural, finessey looking bait. And then, you know, I pretty much have a green one, I have a brown one, and I have a purple worm is what I'm talking about for drop shots and a shad one. So I got basically four colors there. And that's all I really want to know is if they're on the shad, do they want the shad worm or do they want the green worm or do they want the brown worm? And then when you go to certain lakes, like Clear Lake's known for Margarita Miller later color, purple worm. Like that's <laughs> like it's California known for that. You go to the <laughs> Delta, they want red. So like you have red stuff. Hmm. Like there was a tournament where... I literally had my green pumpkin prawns and I took some red color and just painted it with the paintbrush. So that way I had my red colored baits like, okay, they're green pumpkin, but I'll just put some red color on them and, 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 you know, red dye on there and boom, now I got, I got red like I want. So it's just, some lakes just have those unique things. So you have to prepare for that. Um, but for the most part, I fish clear water. So most of my stuff's fairly, fairly simple when it comes to colors. Now, when I went back East and fished Texoma and Rayburn and stuff, I did have more colors in the boat because, you know, that plum color works good out at Rayburn and then Texoma can have dirty water. So I needed some of those, you know, black and blues and chartreuse crankbaits that I don't carry all the time out here. Cause you know, generally we're fishing pretty natural looking stuff. I feel like the, the margarita, you litter or like what do we call it what is a what is aaron martin's color what is aaron's that for magic. is that aaron's ma- yeah mm-hmm. uh i feel like those have become like staples across the country not even like just a specific region anymore like we throw the margarita we throw like i feel like that's the one color you could probably throw anywhere in a drop shot and for some whatever reason it gets bad in morning dawn with the shark yeah. yeah, that's, that's a good one too yeah i mean i i think that they're just natural looking colors is what it boils down to. I mean, Aaron's magic is essentially a fancy green pumpkin. You know what I mean? Like if you really break it down, it's primarily green with that blue line and then the brown on the bottom. It's a three color laminate, but the majority of that bait is green. And then you have that blue vein. So like in clear water, maybe it could make a difference, but if it's like stained water, I'm sure green pumpkin whatever probably would have gotten bit but like you just gain confidence in whatever you're used to catching them on mm-hmm. um and i think that sometimes people do play around with colors and find that one color that gets a few more bites than, than another color but does that mean you can't catch them with on like I, i'm not a believer that like you have to have the green pumpkin with the blue flake like i don't think that you need to do that like i'm pretty sure green pumpkin black flake and green pumpkin purple flake probably would have caught fish that day too like i don't think it gets down to the nitty-gritty where like it's got to be blue flake or it's got to be purple flake i think you tend to gravitate towards what you have confidence in obviously but i'm pretty sure if they ate green pumpkin blue flake that day they probably would have eaten the green pumpkin purple flake too andy i can already tell that matt and i would make great friends and <laughs> i was thinking the same thing i'm like man my tackle box is just like straight green pumpkin black and blue like no crazy flake on any baits and then like where i'll get wild with it is like 
in drop shot bait, I'll have watermelon red just because for whatever reason I love watermelon red because it's confidence. Mm-hmm. A green pumpkin worm and then like a morning dawn, just something completely off the wall different than everything else. But that's like it. It's green pumpkin, black and blue, maybe a little bit of watermelon and like the rest can. You yeah. get wild with your Sankos though. You get you oh, have some free. Yeah, you yeah like. Sankos, that's a different story for whatever reason. But like black green pumpkin amber lamb but it's still green pumpkin it's got like a red belly to it and then like uh what what's the other one that i like moon dust i think is the color of a sanko i like which is really weird yeah. and andy but- <laughs> went through this this phase where like this like they'll only eat this color and then they go and fish green pumpkin like no they just eat they're just no- stupid northern fish they're gonna eat whatever <laughs> <laughs> like the sanko bites on dude like that's yeah why <laughs> but the sanko bite is on it's on but Oh, whatever. Yeah, no, it's just it's just funny how there, there's there's guys that get so nitty gritty with everything, and then we have like guys like us that are all like, "Yeah, dude, I'm not spending money on a color that is going to catch the same amount of fish if I throw the other color." Yeah. Which love about this <laughs> it makes me. I mean, I've gone crazy. down that rabbit hole before, where it's like, oh, it's got to be you know watermelon magic, where it's got the small flakes instead of the watermelon candy that has the bigger flakes. I'm just like. If you're around the right fish, like they're gonna eat it. Like I'm yeah. not saying go to the lake and have like white when they want green pumpkin. Like I'm not saying it's like to that degree, but like I can't imagine having just a little bit bigger flake would really make the fish not eat it. Now, yeah. <laughs> do I think maybe one day they could possibly want a purple worm more than a green pumpkin worm? Yeah, I think that that's possible. But I mean, if you have dirty water, like that stuff doesn't matter. Like there's no way because they're, they're lateral line feeders at that point anyway. And I, you know, like smallmouth, they can be crazy where they just want, if it's got chartreuse on it, like it's down their throat, you know? And then there's other days where it's like, it, it better look just like that goby or it better just look just like that shad or they don't eat it. But then the next day you go out there you're throwing a bright chartreuse spinnerbait and they got it halfway down, you know, in their stomach. You know what I mean? Like, it's just crazy how it works sometimes. But I think overall, you know, just having the staples, you want your green pumpkins, you want your browns, your purples, and your shads. Mm -hmm. If you have something along those lines, you're pretty much going to be covered in, in all those situations and for, for a majority of your lakes and then doing that extra little bit of research to figure out, is there a specific color that works well at the lake that I'm going to? Like if you don't have, you know, a purple worm in your box and you're going to Clear Lake, like you probably didn't do your research very well. If you don't go to the Delta and have some red stuff in your box, like you probably didn't do the research very well, which that's me the first time I ever went there. I had no idea that red was a thing. Speaking of very the much Delta. A- Probably like eight or nine years ago, I watched like a college event, like just like a YouTube video or it was on TV. And this guy was catching them on an all red spinnerbait with a painted red, like powder coated blades, just red on red on wet, red. And then like, on they started popping. yeah, it was an yeah. all red spinnerbait with red blades. I'm like, that is the funkiest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then like a week later, like every major tackle shop online had them in stock and they were all sold out. And then you never saw them again. Like it was the wild. You know what's thing. funny is I did make, I made red spinner baits for a tournament up there one time. I painted the red, the blades red, had yeah. dialed in this red skirt. And I can't remember if I caught fish on that one. And I also made like a really like 
natural looking bluegill color spinnerbait too. And I can't remember if I caught fish on both of them or not, but like I made those spinnerbaits and could it have mattered? I don't know, but I probably ended up throwing a chatterbait in the grass anyway. You know what I mean? So it's like, so it's like, I don't know. It just kind of depends. Like I, I think that there's times where they want that, that, that vibration I think is the most important factor, but I know that, you know, those fish like red up there. So I think that having red stuff does make a difference up there. Um, I think the more and more people that fish red there, I think that it'll slowly start to fade out to where more natural stuff takes starts taking over. But if the crawdads and stuff stay super red, like they're, they're still going to eat red. You know what I mean? Like I just, I think that's where it comes from is those crawdads just end up being red there. Like I, I haven't seen them personally, but that's gotta be what it is. Like they can't just be like, Oh, like the red shirt you have on right now, like makes me mad. I'm going to eat it. Like, I can't imagine that it's like a reactive thing like that. There's got to be a reason why they go towards that red. Yeah. I, for, first off, I apologize if you can hear a honking. Someone set off their car alarm and it's been going on for the past minute and a half. Yeah, I heard the car alarm and I heard the cat meow while while it was here. I, I can't stay here in peace with the damn yeah damn cat <laughs> as he walks in the room. Like, what's like, she talking about, Willis? He's like, I heard cat. I must investigate. Yeah, I, yeah. It, if I close the door, he scratches at the door. Like, yeah. Uh, so back to what you're talking about. The fun part about you know working with our friends over at Do It, Do it Molds is that if you have a color in mind that you can't find out there. The nice part is you can go make it yourself, whether it's a mm-hmm. spinnerbait, whether it's a jig, whatever, plastics, the whole nine yards. And that's one thing I've been a big fan of your content, Matt, is because you get pretty wild with your stuff or like pretty unique. Or I'll pick up little tidbits and kind of see which way and kind of starts getting the brain rolling here of different things that you can do. But kind of talk a little bit to how you've kind of found a pretty good system of one, making your own stuff for one, but then two, also being able to have do it molds be as a means to explore your creativity from a tackle standpoint. So it kind of just happened naturally, to be honest with you. Like when I started messing with do it molds was way before I did any of the, the social media content or anything like that. I got, I got a jig mold. I got a, I got a drop shot mold and um, just thought it was going to be a good way to save money, which is why I think a lot of people get into tackle making in the beginning. Um, it can, it save you money. I think it can over the long term, but there, there's going to be an initial investment for sure that, that goes into it. Um, but I think that now I think when it comes to my jigs, especially, um, my spinner baits, my buzz baits, I think that that's where the tackle making thing has really benefited me. Um, because I can tweak things. I have the ability to play around with things a little bit more than the average person that just is going and buying a buzz bait or a jig or spinner bait off the shelf. Because one, some of that stuff gets expensive because like, I mean, you go buy some buzz baits, they're 15 buck where I can make a buzz bait for, I don't know, probably $3 maybe. And that's with a good hook in it too. You know what I mean? Like, um, in a spinnerbait, you know, you could probably make one three, four dollars, depending on what components you put on there. And it's a mm-hmm. good spinnerbait. And for me, like I did some research when I wanted to start making the spinnerbaits and, um, I did research to figure out, well, what makes a good spinnerbait, not how to make a good spinnerbait, but what components go into a good spinnerbait? Like 
what blade sizes are the best? What blade types are the best? What makes a bass want to bite a spinnerbait? And it all basically boiled down to what vibration do those fish want? And the main things that come into play with the vibration on spinnerbait is wire size and blades. Those are the two main things that factor into how much vibration that that bait's going to have or not have. Thicker wire on that on that spinnerbait, less vibration. Smaller blades, for the most part, less vibration. Now, different blades, like a Colorado blade, is going to give off a good amount of vibration, whereas a willow blade is going to give off a little bit less vibration. All those things go into play when it comes to developing a spinnerbait that you're going to make yourself. So there is some complexity to it, but I got lucky. And after the research, I ended up kind of just playing around with it and making one, took it out. The lakes were fishing um, good for, you know, throwing around a spinnerbait. We had brush in the water, stuff like that. So you're able to fish it through the brush, which is perfect for a spinnerbait. And I ended up dialing in the spinnerbait that I like to use. And it's nothing special. It's just a thin wire with a willow blade and a Colorado blade combo. And I stumbled upon, you know, gold blades being one of my favorites because that's what I was able to get the easiest, most, it was the easiest ones to get were the gold ones where I probably would have bought silver. Would the silvers have made a difference? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I think that sometimes going with gold blades when everybody else is throwing silver just, you know, gives it a little bit different of a flash in the water compared to what everything everybody else is going to be throwing. And I think that sometimes that can make a difference. Uh, when it comes to the buzz bait, it's kind of the same thing. Like I just researched what makes a good buzz bait and it all boils down to sound for the most part. And so I was like, okay, well, if the sound's important, how do I make it have more sound? And the type of blade you use is important. Um, whether the, the blade goes in and out uh, of the, of the, if the wire goes in and out of it, or if it just has the two little round openings on each side of it, um, one of those blades makes more sound than the other. Um, and then how do I manipulate the wire? Is a thinner wire better on a buzz bait or is a thicker wire better on a buzz bait? And for, in my opinion, a thicker wire is generally better on a buzz bait because it gives you more sound. There's more surface area and it's going to hold up a little bit better. Um, and then do I want a clacker? Do I not want a clacker? So like, you can start doing all these different things at a much cheaper cost mm -hmm. for the most part when you're making some of these baits yourself, then, okay, do I need, do I need the mega bass one for 20 bucks or do I need the warrior one for three? And then, well, I don't know if I like this blade, but I like that blade. Well, now I can just make it and I can try whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of just dot, stumble upon what works. And then when it came to the plastic that I use most of the time, when it's a dual molds, uh, berry bug, and it's kind of a funky looking plastic, but for whatever reason, the fish like it on a buzz bait and I make it in a stiffer plastisol. So that way it holds up good on a buzz bait and the fish like it. <laughs> I, I tried a gold blade because the gold blade worked on a spinner bait. So why not try it on a buzz bait? They eat it. You know, when it comes to the jigs, like I was trying to get as close as I could with a jig that I liked fishing already. And the mold showed up and it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be when I ordered it. And, but I fell in love with that jig because I caught a lot of fish with those jigs. Like that's what it boiled down to for me is I figured out, do I want to like make my own skirts and play around with it? Do I want to buy pre-made skirts? And, you know, I've learned how to do both. So if I get a pre-made skirt, it's easy to just slide it on there. But if I want to customize it, wire tie it, thread it, whatever, you know, I have the ability to do both because if I want to make, 
you know, a silicone jig, I put silicone trailer or silicone skirt material on there. If I want to do a round rubber one, I put the round rubber on there. And I think that playing around with silicone and round rubber can be beneficial because I think there are times where the round rubber can outdo silicone. And then I think there's other times where they want silicone. I just think that they have a different action sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's super oh. cool. Cause like, that's something you can easily go back to the drawing board and just whip up versus having to go order something off Omnia or another online fish, uh, fishing tackle retailer, like, you know, and spend more money. Whereas, you know, if it's a part thing, that's it's one, it's mm-hmm. cheaper. And two, you're going to get way more of it, and it's an easier adjustment to something you like. I think that's what's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. And I just think that you have the freedom to do whatever you want. If you want to make an orange buzzbait and try it, you can. You never know. Mm-hmm. You might just stumble upon something that works really well, or it doesn't catch a bass at all. And okay, I'm out two bucks, like big deal, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, whereas like I just bought this $20 bait and it doesn't catch fish, like what a waste of money. You know, so yeah, there's an investment when it comes into buying the molds and stuff like that. But once you get into making that stuff and finding stuff that you do like and catch a lot of fish on, it gives you the the ability to make a lot of them. So like if I go to a tournament, I'm not going to run out of spinnerbaits. I'm not going to run out of buzzbaits because like I can make them. I can have just the wires with the heads already poured and I can just put everything together in the boat and it takes me no time at all. You know, like if I want to play around with blade colors on a buzz bait, I can, I'll just leave the, the, the um, blades off the buzz bait and I'll put them on, on the water. And I just have the blades and the, and the, um, the rivet in the boat. I like a bead on the front of mine for whatever reason too. I feel like a bead in front of the blade does something. I can't tell you exactly what it does, but it's confidence for me. And I think that that matters. Sometimes it may not do anything, but if it's more, I have more confidence in it, I'm going to be more in tune with it while I'm fishing it. I'm probably going to be more apt to trying to make that cast a little bit better because I feel like this bait that's in, in my hand right now has the best chance to get bit. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. You created your own confidence. Uh, Essentially. Yeah. Because like, with my jigs, for example, like I, I 90% of the time I have like two different jig colors in my box. And most of the time I'm buying pre-made skirts from Six Sense. I like the jungle craw color and um, I'm blanking on the other one. It's like a green pumpkin with some purple in it. And the jungle craw has got green pumpkin with some red. And um, it's just kind of a unique color. And I fall in love with that color. I catch fish on it all, all over the place. And the head that I like to use is the... the um, it's the weedless football jig with holder and it basically has the flat side on it hmm. and um, on the head. And I just think that it helps that bait just stand up and whatever trailer you got on there, those claws are in that defensive crawfish position. And I just feel like overall I get more bites with that jig than I have in the past with other jigs. And that's why I just gravitate towards that one. I can put a smaller hook in there if I want to have a smaller hook or a smaller profile jig. Like if I'm fishing around smallmouth, I can downsize and make that jig a little bit smaller. If I want a big profile jig, I can put a bigger hook in there and, mm-hmm. you know, put a bigger trailer on there. So you can just manipulate things for whatever species or whatever lakes you're going to. Yeah. Heck yeah. And I probably throw a smaller jig than most people throw. Like my jigs, 90% of the time, three eighths and a half ounce have a three aught hook in there. And I cut that skirt down. I cut the trailers down and I so feel like. Yeah. Or yeah, it's like jig. a finesse football jig. And I think that, you know, 
I don't see, I, I feel like that's a full size jig to me in my mind, that's a full size jig. But like, you know, when I look at other jigs, like they're big, man. And I just, we just don't generally get bit on that stuff out here. Like you hmm. need to downsize, you need some of that mm -hmm. smaller stuff. And I'm not saying there's not a time and place for it out here. Cause I guarantee you, you throw a big jig around here, you're probably going to get a big bite at some point, but you know, when you're needing multiple bites, especially around smallmouth, like if you have smallmouth and largemouth in that lake, you're going to want something that both species are going to eat. And if you get too big of a jig, those smallmouth just probably aren't going to eat it. Yeah. Heard that. It's, I don't want to go dive too deep in it. Cause I want people to go listen to the finesse football jig show tomorrow on lure lab. But uh, that is one that is very applicable around the country. And I think I encourage folks, if you're listening to this right now and you want to check out do it molds, we have a link down below in the description. You guys can head over there. If you're not following Matt Luna and his content, I highly recommend it. All of his socials are down below in the show, uh, show description. Uh, and he's got a lot of really good do it molds content. He's a genius with it. You can, I'm sure Matt is, you're cool with people reaching out. If they got do it molds questions, anything along Absolutely. those lines. Um, Absolutely. Do, yeah. Feel free, guys. Definitely reach out. He's got great content on YouTube and Instagram, uh, all across all of his platforms. Kind of a wizard with it, if you will. Um, <laughs> but uh, but Andy, before we hit him with our, our last question of the night, do you got anything else for, for Matt here before we let him go? Um, not this moment. I would be really intrigued, though, to like break down skirt colors and stuff for jigs in the future. So I think that could be something that we could talk about later on. Sounds too. like a Lure Lab special guest. Could be. <laughs> Could be. So. Yeah, I'd love to. You. I, anytime you guys want me on either one of the shows, I'm I'm, I'm definitely yeah. willing to do that. Heck yeah! Awesome. Well, dude. So, I like our introduction where we wanted to throw it back to everything. When you're when this is your first time on the show, we like to close it out with one question that we ask everybody that's new to the show, uh, and that is if you could sit down with three different individuals. Uh, doesn't have to be fishing industry. Could be they could be alive thousand years ago. Doesn't matter. Any but any three individuals sit down, have a steak and a beer, and pick their brain. What three people are you inviting? Oh man, that's a tough loaded one. question. I think okay, I'm gonna do a fishing one, and okay. I think that I would want to sit down with Aaron Martins. Um, be great because one. I've been fortunate enough; I have met him and been able to have a conversation with him. Met him at Lake Mead for the U.S. Open one time. And he was staying at the same place as us. And we just got to chit chat with him. It was, it was a super cool experience. But, you know, I would love to pick his brain when it comes to fishing, being a West Coast guy, going back east, fishing, all that kind of stuff. The business side of it, all of, all of that kind of stuff. I would love to pick his brain on that part of it. Um, and then, you know, my first love being baseball. Man, uh, I'd love to talk to... I think I'd like to sit down with Tony Gwynn and talk hitting. Ooh, that'd be a fun I, one. I think that uh, I think that with I played baseball all the way through college, and I think some of the things that the way he articulated things and talked to people about hitting, I think is is different than what I found to be successful. So I just love to kind of pick his brain and see where where I'm wrong because I mean that guy is one of the greatest hitters of all time. So where am I wrong? And even though it worked for me. Why am I wrong compared to the, the masses of people and why it worked for him? So I think that would be an awesome conversation. And then number three, 
You know what? I'm going to go with my, probably my great grandfather who's passed away. I didn't get to know him very well um, as I was a kid and growing up. And um, about the time he, I started to get him to know him really well, he would come to my baseball games. Um, he was big into baseball. He was big into fishing as well. He actually owned a tackle shop here in San Diego County way before I was around. Um, fished all the time, caught a lot of big fish out here locally. Um, but I just didn't get to have a lot of those conversations with him that I would have had now. Um, one regarding baseball, he knew the Boones very well, like Aaron Boone, um, the, uh, Brett Boone, the father, the grandfather. He knew them really well. Um, and then just to pick his brain about fishing and just all of it. And I think that it'd be a pretty cool relationship if I were able to to have that now because he's he's been passed away for a while now. I think that that would be pretty pretty cool. Yeah. Heck yeah, that's pretty awesome, dude. That's be a cool good three. Yeah. yeah. Heck yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much for uh, for joining us tonight and getting on here and sharing some knowledge on finesse fishing and dropping a, a pretty dang cool three uh, for a trio to to cap off the episode here. But uh, for real, thank you for joining us. It's been awesome. Yeah, Obviously, you. I want to get you back on the show. And, uh, yeah, man, we'll be talking to you. So take care. Sounds and good luck the rest of the fall. Me. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate stay, it. Stay cool out there. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you guys don't get iced in too soon. I'll be I'll be fishing when you're, you know, walking on the ice, digging, uh, drilling holes in there. But but uh, hopefully yeah. you guys yeah. can get on the water we'll, for a while. So. We we'll hope see. we had a long – where we had a, a late winter last year where uh, I think my last day fishing was New Year's Eve. So I'm hoping oh, wow. it's the same case. Hopefully it's the, I mean, granted, it's Great Lakes. We'll have inland lakes that'll freeze over prior, but um, hoping that could be the case. If not, we'll just <laughs> retreat south somewhere. We'll find some yeah, place to get because we're not, we're not hard open water. Yeah, we're not hard open water. water. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, dude, we appreciate it, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. All right, guys. Thank you. Bye. All right, have a good night, Matt. Dude, I this is like another episode. I feel like we, we've talked about it a bunch, but like the the rabbit hole of colors is so enticing sometimes. But then I'm so grateful in other cases where I'm like I'm glad that I'm simple because the way my brain works, I don't think I could handle going down this rabbit hole like Matt was talking about, like this green pumpkin black flake versus green pumpkin purple flake. You, you know, know what I mean? Like it's. The greatest company ever, and not from a color standpoint, naming, like Reaction Innovations, right, came out with all these crazy names for their baits. And honestly, I think it was just to get people to buy them. Because Sweet Beaver was like. Yeah, the Sweet Beaver. But like, think about like some of the names of the baits like that. they. Oh, I know what you mean. I'm just saying, but they actually made some good stuff, though. Oh, absolutely. They're great baits, but like there's so many colors that you don't need, but they have such a catchy name. You're like, I'm going to buy that color just because of the name on it. And I find that hilarious. You're you're just totally confessing to the world right now, the kind of man you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. But uh, again, uh, for folks um, that uh, if you guys were interested at all in the do it moles discussion, we do have that link down below. If you guys want to get yourself hooked up uh, as well as I encourage you to go over to Matt's social media that we've linked below on both YouTube and MP3, go give him a follow. You will not regret it. Uh, he puts out some banger content. Thank you again to Matt for joining us tonight. And uh, next Tuesday, it's going to be interesting. I'm flying to new Orleans 
Uh, so I'm going to try to get to the hotel in time to record our show. But I don't know if we have a guest lined up just yet. But if we do, obviously, you guys will find out over social media. But uh, Andy, anything on the hopper for you before we, we tune out tonight? I have lots of steelhead trips coming up. So if you follow me on social media and you see a lot of silvery, silvery, silver chrome things, it's just because that's what's going on right now. The steelhead run here is just silly. Absolutely silly. And Lake Erie's had 14-foot waves on it every day, it seems. so, Or it's been raining and I don't feel like getting the boat out because my boat sits outside and it'll take a month to dry out and... With temps getting down to freezing, it gets a little sketchy. So don't want stuff freezing on the inside. Go park it in yeah. Jeff's garage for a day. It'll warm up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I probably should. He probably loves me, honestly, but yeah. Oh, Jeff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, folks, we appreciate you guys. As always, if you are listening on MP3, please leave us a rating and review. Uh, And if you are watching on YouTube, please, as always, like and subscribe. And we'll see you guys next week. Well, that was an awesome show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can and your app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get seen more, which allows us to access more time and more variables to be able to bring to the show to make it better for you guys. So hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you liked some of the things we talked about in this episode and want to check out our show partners, all of that is in every single show description. You can click down there. It's got all of our discount codes, all of our links to our show partners where you guys can go and support the people that support this show and help us make this show happen. And of course, this show does not happen without you guys. You guys know we appreciate you. You're the Sears Sanger fam. You're the reason we're here. Appreciate y'all, and we'll see y'all on the next one.